0: You're listening to Once Upon a Time, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, we take a fresh look at some of the most familiar stories of Jesus and hopes of being changed from the inside out. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. Well, as you probably know if Formation's your home, we are in a series uh, that we have called Once Upon a Time, and so we are studying the stories of Jesus. The Gospels are filled with these stories that traditionally we call parables that Jesus used to teach about the kingdom of God, and so we're taking a fresh look at a handful of those. I do want to say at the end of this message today, we're going to do uh, have a time of Q&A, which we have not done in a long time. And so, I'm so excited to see some of the joy on your faces. The rest of you, not so much. Um, But at any point, if you have a question about anything that you hear, we have a topic today that can be very, very complicated in its application. And so, I want to encourage you at any point from here moving forward, you can text questions in, and then after our reflection time, uh, I'll answer as many of those as we have time for before we take communion together. All right? So, that number is going to be on every slide, or this uh, slide will be up, so you have that in front of you the whole time. Um, But... I do want to just start by saying I want to be really intentional about treading carefully this morning because we are wading into a subject that is very complicated and potentially painful for many of us. This morning, we're going to invite Jesus to tell us a story about forgiveness and its antithesis, resentment. And the reality is that forgiveness is a fundamental virtue for a flourishing life. But what I know is because forgiveness lives in the realm of some very deep woundedness for many of us, that the moment I've I've taught on this subject multiple times in the last 20 years, every time it comes up, you can almost see people tighten up because of the wounds that this subject is attached to. And so what I want to invite you to do is to just try to stay open and to listen, and to hear what the Spirit of God has for us today. Because again, forgiveness is a fundamental virtue for us to experience anything resembling the flourishing life that God intends for us. And if you think about it, when something is fundamental, just think about that word. When something is fundamental, it means it is an essential part without which the rest won't work. And so this is why when you first learn a sport, for instance... Coaches start with the fundamentals. As you probably know, our city just got done hosting the NBA All-Star Game for the first time in 30 years. And if you didn't get to see any of it, it was a spectacle of the superior skill that these players possess. It was unbelievable. But here's the thing. Those players that we just watched last weekend, they didn't start day one draining shots from half court, which happened a lot of times in this game. They didn't start by dunking over multiple human beings. I literally saw a human dunk over two humans in the dunk contest. They didn't start by handling the ball so well that it looked like literal magic. They had to learn the fundamentals. So they had to learn the basics of dribbling. They had to learn the fundamentals of just how to shoot a layup or a close range jump shot. They had to learn the basics, the fundamentals of defense and rebounding, how to just throw a basic bounce pass. Apart from learning these fundamentals, the rest of their now far more impressive skills absolutely never would have developed. See, when something is fundamental, it is an essential part without which the rest won't work. And forgiveness is a fundamental virtue for a flourishing life, meaning that if we don't learn this spiritual practice, and I would argue that forgiveness is just as much a spiritual practice as prayer, as reading scripture, as anything else that we would think of as a spiritual practice. If we don't learn this as a spiritual practice, the rest of our lives simply will not work. That's why it's so important for us. Now, I would argue that forgiveness is fundamental for at least two reasons in our lives, okay? It's going to be okay back there, I promise. They've (laughs) unfortunately got that door open, and I promise they'll shut it in a second. It's fundamental for two reasons, okay? Here's the first. Number one, forgiveness is fundamental to our holistic health. We underestimate the impact that resentment and forgiveness play in our holistic health. A John Hopkins study has found that resentment, which is what grows in us when we harbor hurt rather than forgive it, resentment has been linked to higher incidences of stress, heart disease, high blood pressure, Uh, lower immune response, and then it affects our mental and emotional health by increasing things like anxiety and depression. And that's just a short list out of all of the health issues that increase when we harbor resentment. So St. Augustine did not have the science, but he did possess the intuitive insight that the science has confirmed when he said this, resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Forgiveness is fundamental to our holistic health. But there's another reason that it's so fundamental. The second reason is this. Forgiveness is fundamental to lasting relationship. It's fundamental to lasting relationship. Um, I'm going to say something I don't think will come as any big surprise, but have you noticed how people have a way of causing us pain? It doesn't matter how much we love one another. It really doesn't matter how healthy our relationships are we will inevitably hurt one another, which means that for any relationship to last, forgiveness must be a shared commitment. So forgiveness is just fundamental, a fundamental virtue for a flourishing life. And so here's the simple wisdom that we're going to learn from Jesus in this story today. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Our big idea is this. Children of God choose forgiveness. Like so many of the Christian virtues, forgiveness is not a feeling. It is a choice that we make. Children of God choose forgiveness. Now, here is the challenge for all of us. Most of us live with a ceiling of sorts on our forgiveness. Now, here's what I mean by that. Most of us are willing to work toward forgiveness in what we might think of as like the small, everyday hurt that we experience from one another. So maybe someone's short with you. Maybe someone is thoughtless in a response or... You're trying to talk to them about something meaningful and they're distracted away from what it is that you're saying and that doesn't feel great. Maybe a hurtful word is spoken in the heat of conflict. Most of us are willing to work toward forgiveness in these small everyday hurts, but there is certainly a ceiling on what most of us are willing to forgive. See, sometimes a hurt is so much bigger, so much more egregious that we make the understandable but the unfortunate choice To harbor hurt rather than to forgive. And I I really want you to understand that I, I don't share any of this this morning from a place of being disconnected from the size and scope of woundedness that a human can bear. I don't say this as someone who's gone through life experiencing no hurt from other people. Like all of you, I have experienced immense hurt at the hand of people that I should have been able to trust. But regardless... Not only does this resentment poison our souls, but it is also, again, out of step with our identity as children of God. Children of God choose forgiveness. So this morning, we're going to look at Matthew 18, uh, specifically verses 21 to 35, and we're going to look at the story of the resentful servant. story of the resentful servant. Now, this story centers around Jesus' answer to a question from Peter. Now, Peter is my favorite of Jesus, OG, original disciples. He is a successful fisherman by trade. Jesus called him out of a boat and then spent three years preparing him and the rest of the disciples to build the church that he was about to birth. Peter was rash, he was unrefined, he was passionate, and as a result of all of those attributes, he was no stranger to the regret of a rushed decision. He was no stranger to the embarrassment of making a mistake, But despite this, and this is where I don't think Peter gets enough credit, he was quick to repent. He was quick to refocus. He was quick to redirect his passion and energies in a way that despite his mistakes, even in the wake of them, it drew him closer to rather than further from Jesus. And so a question from Peter prompts Jesus to provide a a controversial answer, answer and then a compelling story explaining the motive behind our choice to forgive. So look with me at Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, it's all going to be on the screen. So read with me. It starts like this in verse 21. Then Peter approached him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Now, on the surface, Peter's willingness to forgive someone seven times is... Pretty noble, if you think about it. Like most of us really can't imagine putting ourselves in the position to be hurt by the same person in the same way over and over and over again. That happens what? Once, twice, maybe three times, and it's over. So on the surface, Peter's willingness to go, Jesus, seven times, is pretty noble. But what appears noble is not in reality, because here's what's happening in this question. The popular rabbinic teaching of their day in first-century Jewish culture held that someone was required to forgive a person three times. But on the fourth offense, they were released from any obligation to forgive. And Peter knew that. And so while it might appear noble on the surface, in reality, Peter's kind of just trying to impress Jesus here by going above and beyond the standard of their day, as he has heard Jesus do countless times. But despite his best attempt to cover his own self-righteousness and humility, Jesus sees right through it. And he goes, no, no, Peter, not just seven, but but 70 times seven. Now, scholars debate, because that's what they do, whether Jesus means 77 times or 490 times, which can we just stand back and go, this is the dumbest debate we've ever had. Because it completely misses the obvious point. It's not about the literal number. Jesus is simply saying, children of God choose to forgive. And it's almost like if you listen closely, you can hear Peter's brain melt inside of his head. And perhaps sensing his overwhelm, Jesus then proceeds to tell a story about forgiveness. Look at verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything that he had be sold to pay the debt. And at this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. All right, so Jesus pictures this king who decides to settle accounts with his servants, and one servant in particular owed what can only be described as an insurmountable debt. Jesus uses a hyperbolic sum of money in order to make this point. He says that the servant owed his king 10,000 talents. I'm not going to break down all of it, but essentially, if you were to bring this sum forward into modern times right now, this servant owed upwards of 6 to 10 billion dollars okay? It's supposed to be a ridiculous, absurd sum. It's called hyperbole. It's the whole point. The point is this servant is completely incapable of ever paying this debt back. And so imagine being this servant. Not only do you owe a debt you can't repay, but in addition, you're going to lose your entire family. You're going to lose everything that you have worked to acquire. And so we would probably respond just like this servant. He falls to his knees, and he begs the king for patience. Now, the irony is no amount of patience would have helped this guy. He could work every second for the rest of his life. He would never be able to pay back this debt. But to the servant's surprise, the king feels compassion, and instead of patience, just simply forgives the debt. Again, he could have worked his whole life, and he never would come close to paying the king back. The debt was simply too big. It could not be paid back, so the king cleans a slate. Now, you would think that to be freely forgiven, an insurmountable debt must be life-changing. Sadly not. Look at verse 28. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. And at this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will repay you. But he wasn't willing Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed, and they went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back everything that was owed. Now, this servant again has just been forgiven a multi-billion dollar debt. Not given more time, not had it refinanced to make it a little bit easier for him to pay back. He's just forgiven. He's released from the debt that he's owed. The obligation just simply ceased to exist. Now, I'm quite confident that all of us in here have some type of debt. right? It probably varies, but we all have at least like a cell phone contract, student loans, maybe monthly rent or a mortgage you're paying back. And so I just want you to imagine that debt for a second. okay? And some of those debts are sizable. So imagine you get a phone call from whomever it is that holds the loan saying, hey, we just wanted to inform you that we've just decided to absolve you from the obligation of this debt. It's just forgiven. You don't have to pay any of it back. Now, would that not blow your mind? If, you, if someone called and just forgave your mortgage, I'm thinking like you're probably throwing a party sometime soon. You're at least going to take somebody out to dinner to celebrate that. But notice this man does none of that. He literally leaves being forgiven and then immediately runs out and finds a, 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 another person who owes him a comparatively small debt to what he's been forgiven. Again, in modern times, about 12 grand. So he's been forgiven. Let's split the difference and say it's $7.5 billion. And he goes out and literally chokes a guy out over a $12,000 debt. And despite this man's cry for mercy, the forgiven servant refuses to forgive the debt of this person who owes him, and he has the man thrown in prison until he can pay. Now, anyone with even a little bit of heart hates this servant at this point. Because it's just objectively disgusting to be forgiven this sizable sum and then to physically assault someone over virtually nothing by comparison. And even in the story, this injustice doesn't go unnoticed because, again, his fellow servants observe the entire event, and they are understandably upset. And as a result, they they go tell the king, and like you and me, the king is appalled, and he summons the servant back, and I just want you to imagine how awkward and uncomfortable that conversation would be. The king says, Man, I just forgave you this massive debt, but you in return refused to forgive a comparatively insignificant amount. I showed you forgiveness, and you showed none. And the king is angry, and he has the man in the story arrested and tortured. And this is the point in this in Jesus' story where everybody listening probably pretty riled up by what's taken place, and that means they are right where Jesus wants them so that he can drive home his point. Look at verse 35. So also, he says, my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Now, Jesus' point is simple. Forgiven people forgive people. Now, one thing that's really important when it comes to interpreting parables, and this is where parables tend to get pretty weird, is is we have to understand that not everything in a parable is meant to mirror reality. You know what I mean by that? Like, we have a tendency to read a parable, and we go, okay, so you got the king, the king's God, so whatever the king is like, God's exactly like. And that, we do an injustice to the parables when we allow them, or, or force them, if you will, to mirror reality. There is an an aspect of, like, you're being told a fictitious story that has a very specific intent. So there is a point at which, and this is where parables have gotten, so if you read historically the way that parables have been allegorized through history, where every single thing in a parable mirrors some part of reality, they just get super weird. So there is an aspect where you have to suspend disbelief a little bit. It would be be like watching the Avengers and being like, I don't know if Hulk would really be that strong. Hulk's not real. Hulk's not real. Dummy. So maybe we don't press it that far, okay? So that is really, really important. This king is not meant to be a perfect picture of the character and nature of God. And so, just as Jesus highlights the lesson here, he isn't saying that if you don't forgive, God's gonna throw you into prison and torture you. That's not what he's saying. Commentator and scholar Klein Snodgrass, not a great name, but a good commentator, He writes this, The judgment language is hyperbole, not a description of actuality, but it assures people that there will be a reckoning and that God will vindicate the oppressed. And so Jesus' point is simply this. Because the children of God have been forgiven by him, they choose to forgive those who sin against them. Now, even if we understand what it is that Jesus is saying, and even if we agree with him in principle, This invitation to forgive, often if we're honest and attentive to what comes up in us, it fills us with dread. And that's largely due to a lot of bad teaching and a lot of really bad thinking about the topic of forgiveness. See, we have been told, some of us, or we have learned to believe that forgiveness means that we have to forget what happened. Forgive and forget. We've heard that's not even just a Christian thing. That's like a cultural slogan. Can we just acknowledge how dumb it is? The notion that to forgive means that we forget what has taken place. That's not a thing. We fear that if we were to forgive, it means we have to pretend as if it didn't happen. That's also dumb. We fear that if we forgive, it means we just have to brush it under the rug. That's not true either. To forgive, sometimes we believe it means we have to put ourselves in a position to be hurt again. Or I have seen teaching on forgiveness used to keep women in particular in abusive situations. There is a current church of great prominence right now that a huge wealth of information is coming out about how their counseling department has used the teaching on forgiveness to keep women in unsafe environments. I'm here to tell you the Bible doesn't teach that but it seeps in to our thinking, and as a result, we feel this sense of dread when it comes to the topic of forgiveness. But here's the truth. Forgiveness does not demand any of that. In fact, what the Bible would tell us is that unless there is genuine repentance from a person who has sinned against us, and to be clear, that means that they fully own what they did, they pursue restitution and the necessary change in their lives to ensure it doesn't happen over and over, if that stuff doesn't happen, forgiveness doesn't even mean reconciliation in a relationship. If all of those things are present, I have seen the way that repentance and forgiveness can bring reconciliation in some of the most egregious of situations. But if those things aren't present, forgiveness is simply a unilateral choice between us and God, that truly has virtually nothing to do with the other person. And so as we make our way through this, if, if any of that feels unclear to you, again, text in a question, and I'll try to uh, explain that a little bit more. But for now, I want to just invite you to let go of any fear surrounding forgiveness. Primarily because Jesus will never call you to something that isn't good for you. And this invitation to forgive is driven by his desire to to see us flourish. So the question then is, how do we choose forgiveness? You might be here and and, and be thinking like, all right, I I understand what Jesus is saying. I agree with what Jesus is saying. How in the world do I go about moving toward forgiveness in some of these areas where I am harboring hurt? Well, to that end, I want to teach you something I'm, I'm going to call the forgiveness cycle. And the forgiveness cycle is a process made up of three choices that with time and commitment can result in forgiveness, will result in forgiveness in our lives. So, we'll call this the forgiveness cycle. Here's choice number one. Choice number one is to confess the hurt. Confess the hurt. See, too often, when we say that we have forgiven someone, what we've actually done is we've just stuffed the emotion in a way that denies it. Oh, I've forgiven that person. Well, but if we haven't really worked through any sort of process, all we've really done is lock that away somewhere inside of us where we don't think about it anymore. So it's a denial. We choose to ignore the hurt, and confession lets it out rather than holding it all inside. Now, the problem is that acknowledging that we have been hurt, just that first step, acknowledging this person hurt me, that can be very hard for us to do. It requires humility to acknowledge that someone else has power to wound us, to hurt us, It requires courage to be able to admit that, but what we have to understand is that harboring resentment poisons our soul. It poisons our relationships, and so as a result, we choose humility, we choose courage, and we confess that hurt to God. This hurt me, Lord. Furthermore, we confess that to a safe person or people in our lives. That could be a spouse, A parent, a friend, a therapist, it could be your formation group, it could be a pastor. But we have to get that out because understand, denying pain, this is one of the most important lessons I've learned personally about our spiritual emotional health, my spiritual emotional health. Denying pain doesn't make it go away. It just drives it underground where it grows until your soul can't take it anymore and then it starts to seep out, typically in very unhealthy ways. So We can't deny it. We've got to find a way that's healthy to get that out before God. Children of God choose to forgive, and forgiveness means choosing to confess the hurt. Here's the second choice in this forgiveness cycle. Choice number two is to grieve the loss. Isn't this a fun sermon? You guys pumped about this? Grieve the loss. See, when we're hurt, when we have been sinned against, I don't know that we, I have not always thought about it this way, maybe you haven't either, but when we are sinned against, we inevitably experience a loss. And the loss that we experience is often tied to one or more of the core longings to which God has wired us up with. So when we're wounded by someone, what happens is oftentimes we lose a sense of security or safety with that person. That's a loss. When we are sinned against by someone, sin is the antithesis of love. So we have lost a sense of love in that relationship. God designed us to belong. And when there is sin, there is inevitably division. So we lose a sense of belonging. We lose a sense maybe of being significant or purposeful in that relationship. We lose a sense of being understood by that person. And so there is inevitably loss. Where there is sin, there is always loss. Now here's what's important when it comes to loss. We won't heal from loss that we don't intentionally grieve. It just won't happen. It just festers. We will not heal from loss we don't intentionally grieve. And what we learn from the Psalms, if nothing else is that one of the most profound parts of the grieving process is lament. Now, this is a, ironically, even though lament is the most common form of prayer in the Psalms, and we have an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, and we see it in Jesus, and we see it in the disciples, even though it's just everywhere in the scriptures, we hear virtually nothing about it in so much of modern teaching. And the Psalms teach us that one of the most important steps in the grieving process is that we would learn to lament. Now, lament, some scholars even call them prayers of complaint, which I like as a complaining person. (laughs) Lament is a form of prayer through which we offer our unfiltered grief to God. And when I say unfiltered, I don't mean unfiltered in like a Christianese kind of way. I mean like legit unfiltered. To where like if people are listening in on your lament, they should be a little uncomfortable. For for real, like I've been around some people praying some lament, and I'm like, whew, rough. And it should feel rough because grief and pain is not pretty. It's not put together. It's rarely organized or linear. And lament, if we read the Psalms honestly, like Tyler and I have talked a lot about this, if if you don't read through the the Psalms of lament and feel like, I'm uncomfortable with the way David prays, read it in the message because Eugene Peterson did a real great way of helping us actually understand what it is that is being prayed in these laments. These prayers of lament are raw and intense and passionate because because of the deep emotion from which they arise. And so what I would invite you to do if you're working through forgiveness in some area is to write your own lament to God. And you can just Google Psalms of Lament to see the examples. There's So many of these prayers in the Psalms. But just write a lament to God. Tell him about the hurt. Tell him about your anger. Tell him you're disappointed with him, that he didn't better protect you. David did that. Other psalmists did that. God didn't kill him. It must be okay. But take the step to actually tell God about everything that you sense yourself carrying. Children of God choose to forgive, and forgiveness means choosing to grieve the loss. Now, here's the final choice in this forgiveness cycle. Choice number three is to release the resentment. Release the resentment. See, resentment, as I've said, it's it's the choice we make. All of this is about choices. Resentment's the choice that we make to hold on to the hurt. And I want you to hear, you shouldn't be ashamed of that choice. That choice to hold on to the hurt is extremely understandable because there's a wound there, and by nature, we protect our wounds. I've got some issue with my right shoulder right now that I'm going to go see an orthopedist about, and I'm really protective of this shoulder, like when one of my boys walks by me. We've grown to a place in our relationship where there is usually not a walk-by without some form of physical violence between us. And so when I see one of them walk by, I'm telling you, I'm like a real aware of that right shoulder, (laughs) because by nature, we are prone to protect our wounds. But here's the thing, the belief that holding that hurt protects you is a false belief. It's a lie. See, resentment poses as protective, but in reality, it ruins you from the inside out. Now to the contrary, forgiveness invites us to release it. So we release the need to get even. We release the need to seek revenge. We release the need to hurt in return. And here's the thing, releasing the resentment does not mean we are releasing the person from the responsibility for what they did. We're not releasing them from that. We are just simply releasing the resentment, which means we are giving it to God, and we are trusting Him to bring justice in His time and in His way. So in reality, forgiveness is like this really profound demonstration of trust in relationship with God. It demands that I answer the question, do I trust that God is just? Forgiveness means I do. Resentment means I don't. Children of God choose to forgive. And choosing forgiveness means choosing to confess the hurt, to grieve the loss, and to release the resentment. Now, I want to close this before we do some reflecting and some Q&A. I want to close this with two pieces of encouragement for you. I know how heavy and hard, not even just hearing this, but the application of it actually is. So two pieces of encouragement for you. Number one is this. Be patient with the process. Forgiveness is very, very hard. Amen? And if you don't feel like it's hard, it's because you've never tried it. But forgiveness is really hard. And it also takes time. This isn't a one-time decision, and that's why it's a cycle of choices. So think about these three choices in a cyclical fashion. Work our way through them over and over and over again. And as we work this process, forgiveness becomes more prevalent for us. So be patient with the process. And then number two, I want you to hear again. If you are in Christ, this is who you are. It's not about becoming something that you're not. Jesus is not inviting you to that. He's inviting you to be who you truly are. If you are a child of God, meaning that you are living surrendered to him by faith, so by his grace, to the best of your ability, you are seeking to live surrendered to him, then then the forgiveness that you have been shown has created a forgiving heart in you. You have the capacity for this because you are a new creation. And so we seize the grace, offered to us by God's Spirit, and we choose to work this forgiveness cycle over and over and over again. Children of God choose to forgive. And so let's pray and ask for the grace that we need to forgive and to be who we truly are. Will you pray with me? Father, I can almost feel the weight that some of us are feeling this morning. There's this longing inside of us to be who we are and to forgive. But there's also resistance to it, Lord. There's an immense amount of fear that fills our hearts. a fear of what this might open us up to, that it might open us to further hurt, a fear of that somehow choosing to forgive means letting someone off the hook for something that was unjust and wrong. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would clarify our thinking, that you would deal tenderly with the emotion that comes up for us, that you would bring comfort, that you would bring security, That you would give us the courage and the humility and, and all that's necessary for us to actually be a people who are willing to forgive. I thank you that you know how hard it is to not live with resentment. Jesus, you were wronged in more ways than we can count in just your earthly ministry here. Each of us, Lord, has wronged you over and over again throughout the entirety of our lives. And you forgive over and over and over again. Your word says that you have forgiven our sin past, present, and future. And so, Lord, I pray that the reality of that forgiveness that we have received would seep so deeply into our hearts that it would enable us to be a people who readily forgive. So we ask that you would give us the grace necessary and that you would help in Jesus' name.